You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Felix Oberholzer G., who is a professor at Harvard Business School and also the co-host of HBS's new ongoing podcast called After Hours. And I should mention also the author of this book, Better Simpler Strategy, which I enjoyed. And in the book, you said something to the effect that a lot of people question the value of strategy, right? The world is changing so rapidly. It's become so hyper-competitive. Companies are being disrupted so frequently and so often that it doesn't even make sense to kind of have a strategy, but rather going to be continuously reacting to the world around you. And you question that assumption. You, you say, well, the world is not necessarily any more competitive than it always has been. And so there is a, a role for strategy, except strategy needs to be done differently. That's exactly right. Yes. So there is a good amount of research into this notion of hyper-competition, essentially asking, is it really true that competitive advantage is more fleeting today than it was in previous times? And it is such an, I find it such an interesting question, in part because you can go way back in history. You can go back to the earliest 20th century. You can go back to the 19th century. And you will find many managerial accounts saying, oh my God, you will not believe what is happening today. The world changes much faster than it has in the past. And so what's completely interesting about this is this is an individual sense of change that we have carried with us ever since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, that things change more dramatically, that change is happening more frequently and that we're experiencing this acceleration. And so there's no doubt that it's true in the individual's experience. So if you ask managers, compare earlier career right now, what's the rate of change? Everybody will say, oh, it's much faster now than it used to be. And then when you look in the data, the really big surprises, we can't really see it. So for instance, if you look at the competitive advantage of firms, and we all know that competitive advantage tends to decline over time, But that decline is actually no faster today than it was in previous times. And there's much more sophisticated research than just look at the rate of decline, where essentially you can't really see hyper-competition. You can't really say that today it doesn't really make sense to plan for the long term, because who knows what the long term will bring. And we see it even in the most lively spaces. Microsoft has been among the 10 most valuable companies for the past 20 years through ups and downs and they missed mobile and then they did a bunch of things right and and yet you see that they remain very competitive and very successful so i start with this notion saying that planning for the long term makes as much sense as it did early 20th century or or in 1780 if you will well i mean it seems like even if it were true that things were changing more rapidly this would mean that it's even more important that we have some kind of strategy, right? That we have in place some kind of thought about how we're going to respond to this this rapidity of change. So, of course, the first thing I think that you would see if it were true that the world changes in completely unpredictable ways is that we would 
gravitate towards shorter term investment with short payback periods because you and I wouldn't really be sure what's tomorrow consumers taste, what is the technology that we will have available. And so you would see a tendency not to invest in longer term projects and then maybe give up as my former colleague Pankaj Gemawat has this beautiful book on commitment in strategy and where he shows that so much of the power of strategy comes from having committed to a particular course of action that then if everyone else, everyone else around you believes that this is the course that you're going to steer, that that shapes the way we compete with one another. And I guess commitment will go out the window if it were true that the world is completely new and different every moment we look at it. Yeah, and you point out that a lot of companies that invest a lot in strategic initiatives, they do so in a, in a very unsuccessful way. You talk about how they'll draft these 68-page PowerPoint decks that have all sorts of strategic initiatives. And, and it seems like the longer it is and, and the more complex it is, the less it really constitutes a strategy, right? You make the case that in order for it to be a strategy, there has to be some kind of simple underlying logic to the strategy. Yes, and in a way, Greg, it's linked to your first question about this perception of change. I think what happens to many organizations is that they add layers of strategy over time. Say globalization is a real opportunity, and so you have a global strategy. Social media becomes really important, so you have a social media strategy. Then competition for talent heats up, and you have a talent strategy. And I mean, today, when you think about it in a historical perspective, we have the best educated, most engaged workforce in the history of time. And so it's not surprising that on each of these dimensions, you have dozens and dozens of people with really great ideas, and they're willing to spend their time thinking about performing better on all of these dimensions. And the real question is, how do you bundle all of this energy? How do you bundle the many ideas and the really deep talent pools that we have available today? And I think this is what many companies find very difficult. And this is where we get the sense of hyperactivity that doesn't actually produce the kinds of results that you think you will produce. Not sure about you, but because I write cases and I do research and do consulting with companies, I'm always surprised how much companies get done in a relatively short period of time with really constrained resources, like you don't have unlimited budgets and it's sort of hard to find the talent you want to have. And yet you look at any one organization and the list of activities and initiatives is just absolutely mind-blowing. And then you look at financial returns. And the first thing that you notice is roughly a quarter of firms in the S&P 500 have returns on invested capital that are dangerously close to their cost of capital. And then many of them fall short. Many of them are not doing much better than earning the cost of capital. And that's one of the central puzzles that I want to explore in the book. How can it be that you have this wonderful resource, this amazing talent pool in so many organizations? How can it be that you have all of these ideas, what to do better tomorrow? In fact, many strategy meetings are really that, like we're making long lists of things to improve and things to do better tomorrow. How do you square that with the notion that you don't have out-of-this-world profitability or you cannot afford to pay talent like we couldn't really imagine just a few decades ago? Well, I like how you say that there's really a back-to-basics opportunity and you offer a kind of a simple framework. You know, when we teach strategy, we introduce lots and lots of different frameworks. So, you know, we'll do the resource and capability framework. We'll use the five forces framework. 
we'll provide all these different frameworks. And then at the end of the class, the, the students are supposed to identify which framework works in, in which situation. But you're trying to kind of, it's like the tree of life and bring it all the way back to the single core concept, this thing which you call the value stick. And it really resonated with me because I kind of joke with my students that if they go into an interview with McKinsey and they're given a case and they read through the case and then they rattle off like 500 ideas as to how to solve the company's problem, McKinsey's going to be like, thank you very much. We'll, we'll talk to you later. But if they come in and say, all right, look, we either have to increase our revenue or we have to reduce our costs. I'm like, if you do that, then you'll probably get the next interview. But this is not simply because it provides simple messaging, but rather it means that you are capable of doing some systematic thinking from first principles. Is the idea of a simple strategy just a a communications thing, or is it really about, like, how do you get everybody to think from first principles? So one of the challenges with using many different frameworks at the same time is that some of these frameworks are incompatible with one another. They're built on different assumptions. Some of these frameworks might have had empirical validity at some point in time, but they're no longer really describing the reality today. So the BCG growth share matrix has long lost its usefulness and its validity, but I see it in strategy decks all the time. And if the central exercise of strategy is to decide where you want to double down, where you want to build your competitive advantage, which mostly consists of ruling out many opportunities that you have. If the central task is to say no at the right point in time, having 72 different frameworks that invite you to do X, Y, Z without really giving you a sense of, no, actually, this is probably not my highest priority or my best opportunity. Having all of these frameworks is really not useful. In fact, it's sort of the opposite in that it suggests yet another way to allocate resources, yet another way to engage people. When in fact, I think what most companies need is this bundling of initiatives, doing fewer things with greater impact. This hyperactivity that we now see in business every day, that there's a million things going on without much impact, that in fact is sort of worsened as a result of using many frameworks. And so a good part of the research for the book went into what can we say about the very best companies? What is it that they do that we can subscribe in a way that is grounded in data, but that is simple enough to actually tell a story and rule out many of the opportunities that companies have? And so you remember Adam Brandenburger and co-authors a little while ago, they developed this notion of a value-based strategy, which essentially says you're either creating value for your customers or you're creating value for your suppliers or you're creating value for your employees, and then you're just about done. Those are the three sources of profitability. And when I looked into the data for the book, this is an amazing description even today. Like when you look at the most successful companies in different countries, in different industries, and as an author, as you know, you're pushing hard to find that exception where the logic that you want to talk about breaks down, where you find that beautiful counterexample that just really doesn't fit into the categorization that you have set out for yourself. And I couldn't really find it. It was really quite amazing how time after time after time, I said, yeah, 
this is a company that is as successful as many of the other leading organizations because they're just better at creating value for their suppliers or they're just better at creating value for employees or customers. And so the book essentially talks about these three modes of value creation. And as you point out, it's really meant as a substitute for many of the strategy the frameworks that we have traditionally used. It's extraordinarily powerful. I've been teaching the framework for quite some time now. And I've seen once people start thinking value creation first, and then you can be relaxed about many other things, that just dramatically changes how you compete. It dramatically changes how you invest. Yeah, it kind of reminds me with in law, we have these multi-factor tests and, and kind of the more factors you add to a test, then the less guidance you have, because you can just kind of reshuffle the weights around to get pretty much any decision that you're looking for. That's exactly right. Yes. Or if you didn't know what you wanted in the first place, you're even more lost than at the beginning of the exercise. Right. That's a great analogy. Venture capitalists have seemed to have been wise to this, because it's been my experience that venture capitalists, when they're investing in early stage companies, they just want to know, like, what is the value you're creating? What is the problem that you're solving? And they then kind of say, we'll, we'll worry about monetization later. And I think a big part of your message is that in strategy, in traditional strategy, we spend some time talking about value creation, but the bulk of our energy is devoted to value capture. Now, of course, you have to capture the value at some point, but I think you're saying that there's a much higher ROI if you focus first on the value creation and then... Once the pie is expanded, you can figure out a way to divide the pie with the other folks who will benefit from this. Yeah, it's really quite striking. When, when I spoke to CEOs who pursue value-based strategy for quite some time, I remember a conversation with Hubert Choli, who did this amazing turnaround at Best Buy. I was struck by how relaxed he was about profitability. And I think it comes from this place where if you truly know that you're creating value for someone in a way that is differentiated from the competition, so that it's really added value to the economy, then there's almost no way you're not going to be financially successful. I like this shift. Think value first, and then profitability will follow. You would have to convince me that this is the reason why Silicon Valley is not thinking about monetization early. I think my own private sense is Silicon Valley's often not thinking about monetization early for the wrong reasons, in particular because they overestimate the importance of network effects. Mm -hmm. And in a network effects business, of course, as you scale up, the whole notion of blitzscaling and all these familiar concepts now that are really, I think, have run their course, is my sense, because we've now seen time after time after time companies that have, think Uber, pretty significant network effects. And competition remains super tough. So <laughs> there are better reasons not to think about monetization first and maybe more questionable reasons. But the pattern is important. This confidence that you get. If I go out and I know value for customers involves increasing customers' willingness to pay. I think that's actually a really important step. Sometimes we use value in a more colloquial manner. You know, if I go out and I survey customers and I ask them, what would you like to have? I get a long list of things back that they would like to have. And of course, at super low prices on top of everything. 
And that's not value creation in the way that I at least use value creation. I speak of value creation if you increase the customer's willingness to pay for the product or the service. Or in the case of employees and suppliers, if you decrease willingness to sell of employees and suppliers. And so there's real value creation in a monetary sense. So there is the pie that is available for everyone has been increased. And then you can be relaxed about monetization opportunities once you have made that first step successfully. Yeah, I think the way you say it is that would anybody miss you if you disappeared? If no one's going to miss you, then you probably don't have much of a chance to survive as a business. But if a lot of people are going to miss you, then you'll probably be able to figure out a way to support your business? It's such a brutal question. I was in a class with my colleague, Cynthia Montgomery, in an executive education session when she first asked that question. And I will never forget the faces of the participants <laughs> because it just strikes you. It sounds so simple, so innocent. What would the world be like without you? Yeah, you don't just apply it to companies. You apply it to individuals. <laughs> would your family miss you? Would your friends miss you, right? That's right. Yes, it's probably even scarier as an individual, but even as a company, you go, okay, so like think of your grocery store. Think of for how many businesses is it really true that we're sort of heartbroken once they no longer exist? But that, of course, is the true measure of value creation, increases in willingness to pay or decreases in willingness to sell in a differentiated manner. The trick is often, I sometimes meet executives who will tell me, my industry is super tough because customers really just care about price. In the end, you're thinking about differentiation, you're thinking about doing this or that or the other thing, but it's just price reigns supreme. And I'm always thinking, it's not the customers, it's you. If your willingness to pay and willingness to sell is the same as everybody else's willingness to pay or willingness to sell, how do you think customers are supposed to choose? Of course, I'm choosing based on price because there's no other dimension to choose from. And so your experience is that customers think about price a lot. It's their number one criterion. And that's the pressure on the business. But the pressure is created by strategic choices of the business, namely that you have a value proposition that is largely undifferentiated relative to everyone else. Yeah, I mean, you say there's no such thing as commodification. There's just lack of imagination. Yeah. So sometimes it's you define your business in a very narrow sense. I recently did a project with a company that's in the market for oil. And as you know, there are different qualities of oil, but they're not, there's not an endless number of different qualities. And so we started the conversation definitely with a sense that maybe this is one of these exceptions where we truly look at a commodity. And then we drilled down a little bit and unsurprisingly, Customers really care about the reliability of supply. Customers really care about, is the oil going to be on time at a particular port once you commit to that delivery? And so on and so on. And so we started with the sense that, yeah, you know, oil is tough because it's a commoditized business. After speaking about it for an hour, we had this amazing array of options of how we could differentiate a product even as commoditized as oil, because it's not the only thing that customers care about. What gives strategists or people who teach strategy a bad name is that we do sometimes talk about things like, oh, jack up your switching costs. Like you get very defensive. How do you keep your customer from fleeing, right? And you want to put some obstacles in the way. And, you know, Comcast is a great example, right? Famously, you try to disconnect from Comcast and they, they don't pick up the phone <laughs> and they keep you on the phone forever and that sort of thing. And, and I think 
that's sort of a lack of imagination, right? It's not that you, they don't understand the customer. They do understand the customer, but they're focusing not on what delights the customer, but rather on what frictions they can put in the way of the customer switching. Yes. And it's tempting in the sense that, of course, you get an increase in margins, right? So if you keep willingness to pay the same and increase prices, your margins will go up. But when I look at the companies that do really well over long periods of time, I don't actually see many examples of that being very successful. And I think the reason is, if you keep willingness to pay the same and you change price, that's zero sum. You're better off, the customer's worse off, or the customer gains and you lose. And I think the same on the willingness to sell side. If you just squeeze your suppliers, that's zero sum. You're better off, but the supplier is worse off. And in every zero-sum transaction, you have the counterparty pushing against you. So airlines do amazing price discrimination when it comes to who pays how much for a flight. But of course, that means we're now spending quite a bit of time comparing websites and comparing flights because we understand that a million little things that have to do with who you are and how much you're willing to pay, that will be brutally exploited if you show any sign of it. And that is, of course, contributing to financial profitability, but not in a significant way. Why is it so different? Well, if I increase willingness to pay truly for my customers, I get to charge a price premium and the customers will be better off. I always think about that when I walk by an Apple store, you see people come out and you know if they have a product, they just bought an overpriced piece of equipment. But the expression on their face (laughs) They couldn't be happier. Like it was an amazing shopping experience. You love the product that you have. You already feel a little transformed yourself because you're now an Apple customer. And that's the sense in which both the company admirably profitable and at the same time, the customers really enjoy the products and the services that Apple provides. And that's the really sweet spot, the eking out a little bit of better margin by increasing switching costs or by doing more sophisticated price discrimination doesn't really value all that much. But in order to be successful at this, you really have to understand the customer, right? I mean, you have to sometimes understand the customer better than the customer understands the customer. You know, I've worked with a lot of B2B companies where they have to explain to their customer exactly how they're going to benefit from this new product or this new product feature. And in part, it's because... There's a user, a downstream user that's different from the customer. And so you need to not only understand the customer, but you need to understand the user and then sometimes educate the customer about the user, right? Yeah, I think that is very important in customer relationships. And I see it as often in supplier and employee relationships, how companies have a fairly narrow focus. So the companies that I speak with that don't have a detailed understanding of the cost and the economics of their suppliers. It's quite surprising to me because, as I show in the book, if you lower the cost of your suppliers doing business with you, if you do that in a way that is differentiated, that stays on your P&L or a part can stay on your P&L. And so thinking about ways to lower the costs of your suppliers or thinking of ways to make work more enjoyable for your employees where very quickly, like when I ask executives, how do you make a particular job a better job? Before you know it, within a minute or two, we're talking about processes and how to organize and 
maybe career prospects or training opportunities. We're talking very narrowly around what constitutes work. But work is so much more, right? Work is, are you stuck in traffic in the morning? Work is, do you love or do you dislike the way you have to get dressed? What's the interaction in the office like? And so on and so on. So understanding the totality of customer experiences, of experiences that employees have inside organizations and your suppliers, I think is, is actually really key to spotting opportunities for value creation. The, the less you know, the harder it is to imagine what you might do if, in fact, you had true customer intimacy or if you understood your suppliers really well. Yeah, in my strategy class, I've begun to teach it a little bit different from the way you teach it. So you have the willingness to pay and, and the willingness to sell, and then you've got your customers up here and then your suppliers down here. Kind of the way I've begun to think about it is to just kind of refer to everyone as a customer, right? So your employees are your customers and your, your suppliers are your customers and your investors are your customers. Because I think that we have this default understanding of, oh yeah, you got to please the customer because they, they're the ones that are showing up with the money. But when you think of everyone as a customer, then it's like, well, the, the employee is showing up every day with their payment and their payment comes in the form of work. And the suppliers are coming in every day with their payment and their payment is in the form of inputs and or if they're a complimenter, you know, they're showing up every day with their compliment. And so you have to approach them the same way you would approach a customer. A lot of companies in Silicon Valley, they actually kind of rotate the marketing people through these other functions precisely because the marketing people got it first. You highlight how even when you talk to these very sophisticated leaders, they are more likely to think of the employee interface as a commodity than the kind of sales interface. Do we need to start integrating how we think about all of these different interfaces? Is this just because more and more companies are becoming platforms or is this something that has to be done with every company? I think the central idea to create value for parties you transact with, I think is very similar. The way you think about it, the way I think about it, I shy away from calling everyone a customer because I think it sometimes gets businesses into trouble because they confuse customers and value creation opportunities with the entity that pays them. One of my examples is many insurance companies think of brokers as their customers because that's where the business comes from. I don't know if you ever tried to buy insurance in the recent past. It is not the best of customer experiences. Why? Oh, because actually people are not thinking about you, right? So if you have no conflict of interest at all between brokers and people who are in the market for insurance, then of course it doesn't matter. Then the ideal thing to do for the broker is the ideal thing to do for the person who buys insurance and you're totally okay. But that's not how most supply chains and most value chains work. Most value chains have differences in interests, have trade-offs, have conflicts of interest even where what's great for the broker might sometimes be not so great for the customer. And so I always encourage everyone to think of the final user as their customer or the person who directly works for their business. Because then you can say, oh, this is what's best for the person who wants to buy insurance. And now how do I align what the customer really wants with the interests of the brokers? They may be a little different. In fact, I find many startups 
that have really interesting and promising business ideas, that's really all they do. They don't think, well, so let me see, the company that sells products to the grocery store, they're thinking of the grocery store as their consumer. And in fact, the person who shops is the final consumer. And before you know it, you can improve grocery stores in many different ways, simply because you're actually thinking about the final, what I would call the real customer, as opposed to just thinking about everyone. So this is one of the reasons why, as you say, sales-driven organizations often run into trouble because they're, they're just focusing too narrowly on where the value is coming from. Yes. And one of the interesting examples in the book is this company that produced a big belly trash can, which was an amazing advance because it allowed sanitation departments to monitor from afar how full the trash cans were. It was solar power, so you could compress the trash that was in the trash can. So all of these advantages, if you're a representative of a sanitation department and you look at this product, you go, oh my God, this is too good to be true. It does so many useful things. And then, of course, they totally forgot about the people who actually use these trash cans. You may have used some of these. You have to touch the handle and sort of rotate the handle down. It's just like not an experience that anyone would want to have. We had a lot of these trash cans in Cambridge, and you would see literally like little mountains of trash right next to them because people just didn't want to put in the trash. In this case, it was an easy fix because they came up with this foot pedal that would open the trash can. But of course, for many other organizations, it's fatal to think about that the entity that pays you where the monetary flow comes from, that that's your actual customer. And it's one of the benefits of, frankly, just taking value creation as the key metric for success. Well, the other thing that you point out is that no matter how well you know your customer, no matter how well you know your supplier, no matter how well you know your employee, it doesn't necessarily tell you about these near customers. Like, why are the people who are not buying your product, why are they not buying it? Or why are the people who are not coming to work at your office, you know, why are they not doing it? And that requires an, an additional type of thought process and a different type of data gathering, right? Yes. So if you think of a continuum from what we usually call the addressable market, you know, people who are in the market and they're buying the product and to all the way where a group of customers whose willingness to pay is so much smaller than the price that you charge that you can never serve them. Or at least it's incredibly difficult to serve them because the price point would have to change so dramatic. There is an intermediate group whose willingness to pay falls just shy of what's charged in the market. And in particular, at a time when almost everything we do is data-driven, near customers really don't produce data because they are thinking about, oh, this might be interesting, you know, an interesting travel destination, an interesting product, but they don't show up. They're just thinking about it and you don't see them. And the reasons why they don't become visible vary dramatically from business to business. But that's a really interesting thing to think about. Are there groups of people where maybe as a result of the way you position the product in the market, I talk a little bit about wine coolers as one example, where the leading French wine cooler company implicitly thinks about collectors of wine when they design their products. And they have amazing success with that group. But of course, there's a much larger market for people who don't collect wines. You know, you buy your bottle on Thursday and <laughs> its survival chances by the weekend are not all that great. That kind of thing. <laughs> What's the right wine cooler for this group of people? 
I wrote a case on the early success of Alibaba's Taobao, the B2C marketplace that they built, and how they really competed against a back then dominant eBay. People now forget just how dominant eBay was in the early e-commerce space in China. How they basically turned around the ship by appealing to near customers, people who thought, "Well, there's this thing called the internet, but you have to be pretty crazy to buy anything from a person or a business that you don't know." And they found all sorts of interesting ways to mitigate this obstacle. And so, thinking about why is it that someone doesn't buy, and how could you get at that since you don't typically see these people in data? So, no amount of A/B testing will ever help you to really discover. Your customers, and yet it might be your most significant opportunity. Yeah, and that's true also for employees. And I was working with a company, and they were trying to figure out why they didn't have a lot of women in senior leadership positions. And it turned out that there weren't a whole lot of women who were applying for these leadership positions. And so they kept thinking that there was something wrong with the evaluation process, when in fact the problem was with the application process, right? And then. They finally went out and asked these people, like, "Why aren't you applying?" And they said, "Well, you know, we don't like what you're offering us, right? We don't like the product." And so they had to reconsider the product and redesign the product to be attractive to those those near customers, or in, in your case, like near suppliers. Yeah, as my colleague Francis Fry likes to say, diversity inclusion sort of gets it the wrong way around.、It、should be inclusion and diversity. If in fact you have real inclusion in your organization, of course, diversity will follow. If you start with diversity and you don't have an inclusive environment, either it's the result that you saw in that company, or you just invite people to come for short periods of time and then leave the organization quickly. Now, one of the parts I like about your book is is the part on frenemies. When I go around the world and I, I do strategy work with companies, I have to teach them all if they're not native English speakers. I'm like, all right, everybody learn together. You know, frenemies. Right? This is one of the most important words in the English language, and so. A lot of the questions have to do with: Are these other companies that we're seeing interact with us? Are they are they substitutes? Are they complements? And whether they're substitutes or complements, to what extent are they friends? And to what extent are they enemies? Yeah. So you like the fact that you co-create value. That's really fantastic. That's a wonderful thing to see. But at the same time, once it then gets to the question, how do we divide that value between the two companies? Then you're really competitive. You see it now in the litigation between Epic and Apple, right? They co-create value in that Apple created amazing visibility for Epic, and then they took a pretty generous cut. The moment Apple shifts its profit pool from hardware to software, that's a much more important source of revenue and profitability than it used to be, and it will only gain in importance. And、as a result, you get all of these conflicts. Doesn't mean that there isn't joint value creation between Apple and Epic, but it means once you have created a lot of value, you need to find ways to share it with the entities that you want to have a long-term relationship with. And it's sort of a misunderstanding. I think I often see in executives who do this really well. The trick is. To continue to see value creation opportunities without being bitter about the fact that at some point in time you have to share. I think what happens in particular in cases where we end up in litigation that just destroys a whole lot of value is that the value dividing phase is so emotionally charged and 
bitter that then you can't see yourself going back to creating value with that organization. And so in the end, both companies actually lose out. So knowing realistically that, yes, this is fantastic, we can work together and we can create a whole lot of value, but also knowing that it's not your friend. You don't really have that relationship where everything that this entity or this company is going to do is going to be good for your company at some point in time, it's zero sum. Andy Grove famously said, only the, the paranoid survive. And, and I think there's at least some time period in the strategic world where the real danger was that companies would mistake substitutes for compliments and they would fail to see the threat that these other players in their ecosystem posed for their business. I think if we were to paraphrase your point, uh, at least for part of the book, is that the paranoid may not survive. And that the big problem is that sometimes you see a substitute where, in fact, this other player might be a compliment. Is that a fair description? I mean, I've seen a couple examples of this, like PayPal, for instance, where they viewed Visa and MasterCard as substitutes. And then the minute they started viewing them as compliments, I mean, that's when PayPal really took off. Yes, that's exactly right. And your point is a fantastic one, that the bias is exactly the way you describe it. The bias is often that we look at new technology and that we think, oh my God, here's a piece of new technology that must be a substitute. And so then you do everything to fight it or you definitely don't seek collaboration. And often it's a complicated situation in the sense that the true nature often takes quite some time. We all remember the prediction of the paperless office and then everybody has a computer. What's the next thing that happens? Demand for paper explodes because we all like to print. And it seems only in the last couple of years, maybe four or five years, it is in fact true that paper and computers are substitutes because we've now, we have software and we've gotten very comfortable not printing many documents. But the first intuition that people have is often to look at the novel, to look at what's different say, look at blockchain, and your first thought is, oh my God, this is a substitute in so many ways. But in fact, if you're creative, you could easily turn around the situation and create complementarities where they didn't exist. I give you an example close to home. When HBS first thought about online education, our first intuition was, wow, if you offer something like an MBA online, that would be probably a good experience for many participants, but it would be a close substitute for the MBA program. And so we focused the online effort in the early days on people who came out of college and didn't have much of an education in business, but who were curious about business and who wanted to learn about business. And interestingly, many of them had a really fantastic experience with HBS online products. And then they show up in our candidate pool for the MBA program. So there's true complementarity between the two. But that's not by accident. That's a choice of your design. We could have put MBA lectures on YouTube. And then, of course, you get a substitution effect. So I think that's an important thing to remember. Sometimes substitution and complementarity is just given by the nature of the technology. There isn't really much you can do. But much more common is those are real choices that you can make, and your choices will influence the degree to which a novel technology is a substitute or a complement. You offered that example unprovoked. I was going to ask you about that. I was going to 
ask you after asking you to review the story about ASCAP and with ASCAP and radio where they felt threatened by radio and then they realized that radio was actually a promotional tool. And I think in the recorded music industry, even a couple decades later with the introduction of streaming, I think that that was originally perceived as a threat and now it's seen as a great way to get music out in a less expensive way and to promote concerts and all sorts of other monetization opportunities. And so I want to ask you a little more about this. How can universities continue to be relevant in terms of their strategies? How can they leverage new technology? Is Harvard's model one that has some additional potential? Should universities be thinking more broadly about how to use technology to design complements and to preserve their core business, but to supplement it with additional tools? You know, what's really interesting to me is as a result of the pandemic, we're reading all of these examples where the digital transition has been accelerated. And so, you know, everything from takeout and delivery to all of these digital business models. But my sense is that in higher education, it may well be that the experience of the pandemic slowed down the digital transition in the sense that we discovered recreating some of our best in-class, in-person experiences, given the state of technology today, is just really almost impossible. You can get pretty close. We have in executive education, we've built a pretty amazing studio setup where you have, I think, 70 or 80 screens in a classroom setting where everybody sees basically what they would see if they were in class. Yeah, I taught my core classes using that same technology this past year. Yeah. And it's a far better experience than Zoom. So it's really difficult to recreate the best of in-person experiences. And so I wouldn't be surprised if higher education was one sector where we see a slowdown or perhaps a very careful selection of how you integrate technology with teaching experiences. So for instance, everyone who's ever taught on Zoom or similar technology and you've used uh, breakout groups, that's really powerful. And that's something that you cannot easily do in the classroom. But there are so many other things that are just about impossible, at least with the technology that we have today. And so the generally interesting thing is don't take every technology as sort of a given promise of improvement that yardstick, are you creating additional value for, in this case, the people who come to your programs? That is such an important yardstick to think about. I remember a survey, this is maybe five years ago, six years ago, where something like the majority of US companies had groups working on blockchain and thought about, oh my God, blockchain, this really interesting new technology, a million opportunities. And then the last survey I saw, it was a little more than 10%. And you're asking, oh, so what happened with the 40, 50% of firms where this issue has just gone away? And when I speak with companies that had working groups that they eventually disbanded, is there was enthusiasm for the technology. It wasn't an idea of, oh, here's an opportunity to create value. And thank God, something like blockchain exists. And so we can actually pull it off. It was fascination with the technology itself. And so I would say, to go back to the higher education example, just be very clear about how you create value as a result of having interactions with students or with executive education participants. And then think about ways to make it even more valuable 
And I wouldn't be surprised if we would remain, if we continue to use some of the technologies that we have used during the pandemic. And I wouldn't be surprised if demand for in-person education would spike as a result of the not-so-great experiences that we had in many instances. Now, you recount a story how in a lot of your executive education programs, you get people to talk about trade-offs, but then when you ask them where they should be better, they say they want to be better everywhere. And so you force them to create these, these value maps where they have to kind of rank order in importance the areas where they need to really be good and where the areas where they, they don't have to be quite as good. Maybe explain why do you think people don't understand that trade-off? And then also, do you think that that's something that also applies to people individually? Do they also try to be excellent in every regard in their professional lives? And do they fail to kind of rank order in importance what they need to be good at in their professional lives? Yeah, so it's interesting to think about the personal and the business application at one at the same time. Value maps, we must have done this exercise with, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of companies. It is the single most valuable exercise that I can think of in, in strategy. In fact, if someone were to approach me and say, we have half a day, what should we do? I think I would do a value map every time. And the importance of these trade-offs is, is one reason. My sense is what happens is that the brightest of managers, the people who can do everything, they manage to live with relatively few trade-offs. Right? And so typically when we meet senior executives, that's exactly the selection of people who can do it all and can do it successfully. And maybe they sacrifice a little sleep, but they're just brilliant in so many dimensions. And then the mistake I think that we're making is we're superimposing that model of personal success on businesses. And maybe you as an individual, you don't have to prioritize, you don't have to choose, you don't have to make trade-offs, but businesses do. Businesses cannot be good at everything. Otherwise, you end up sort of being of middling quality, uninspiring to everyone. But that is such a hard decision to make, in particular, if you're working with smart and ambitious people. What is strategy? Strategy meetings are often consist of making lists of things you want to improve. And then <laughs> you think, oh, last I checked, you were sort of busy before we met and you had <laughs> limited resources and not quite the talent you wanted to have. And now you're telling me you're going to do these other 12 things in really amazing fashion and excellent quality? I don't really think so. And so you get this hyperactivity because it's hard to say no. It's hard to decide where not to invest, where to under-index, where to live with the sense that that's just not something we're good at. And of course, the benefit of making these trade-offs is that you then get to serve the very customers you get to attract the very employees that are exactly right for what you do. Like to give the example of Uber, Uber has twice as many women as taxi companies when you look at the pool of drivers. How on earth did they do this? Flexibility and safety. So by expanding on particular dimensions, you get a benefit that then both increases willingness to pay or decreases willingness to sell. But also, it gets you to work with the customers. It gets you to work with the suppliers, the employees who are exactly right for your business. It's almost a little bit of an unfair advantage. You Sometimes when you see companies with very high net promoter scores, you think, oh my God, how are they doing this? This is just out of this world that they can 
achieve this level of performance. If you look under the hood, if you scratch the surface, very often there's a really powerful selection effect. They manage to serve a very particular group of people who are exactly right because that's how they increased willingness to pay in the first place. And so keeping these two benefits in mind when you struggle with the issue of how to make trade-offs, I think is really important. You get financial flexibility, of course, because you're creating more value. But on top of that, you get really powerful selection efforts. So I couldn't let you go without asking you to say a few words about your podcast. This is a new thing for universities. How did you wind up as one of the co-hosts on the podcast? And what's that experience been like? So After Hours is a collaboration between myself and two colleagues originally. We have now expanded the number of hosts. It was the three of us, Young Mi Moon, Mihir Desai, and myself. And we have been friends for quite some time. And every time we met, it was just the most delightful of conversations where we would talk about business and society and ideas would fly left and right. But somehow, if you look at our calendars, we didn't actually meet that often. And so we thought, well, what if we had a project? What if we forced ourselves to meet regularly to then really enjoy the conversations that we had? And so that was how After Hours was born. Why it's called After Hours, because it was literally the idea after a day at work, we would meet and talk about whatever happened in business and society. We had very modest expectations. We didn't really know much. We didn't really understand the podcasting space all that well because it was as much a project for us as it was a project for everyone else. We thought maybe for lucky, our mothers will listen to it, like that kind of expectation. And it took off quite unexpectedly and in ways that surprised us. And in part, I think it speaks a little to this moment where conversations where everybody starts with the best of intentions and assumes the best of intentions, even when we clash because we think about the world differently. There is this nature of the conversation, this culture of conversation that is carried by our friendship where you have the greatest respect for someone else. And the response is often, oh my God, I'm so surprised you're thinking A is far better than B because I made the opposite assumption for such a long time. And this, I think, many listeners find really appealing. And we often don't see it as much. And if you look at political discourse, if you look at much of what happens on social media, there is a hunger for true dialogue and getting together with people who think differently about issues. And it takes practice. It takes a particular relationship, I think, among the people who have this conversation to do this really well. But nothing more delightful than my experience, like every other time we take, I walk out of the conversation and my world has really changed because I'm thinking about a particular issue very differently from the way I thought about it going in. We're now in the fourth season or so, and it just continues the greatest joy. So I think what you can learn from this is if you have opportunities, so these can be conversations with friends, maybe conversations with work colleagues, where really the attitude and the goal is let me go in and let me be open to having my mind change probably 15 times in the next 45 minutes or so. The experience is really quite extraordinary. And so if your listeners have opportunities of this sort, I think that's a really fantastic thing to do. What's interesting about it is that it provides customer delight without actually intending to do so. Right? That was sort of not the purpose. And you know, I think if you actually started thinking about it that way, it might actually 
damage the value. It's there's something pure and genuine about the conversations. Yes, absolutely. And it's I think seeing the process also, like how do you make sense every week we're bombarded with news and unexpected events in real time to see I'm actually not the only person who struggles to make sense of it all. I have so many questions about what happens in financial markets, what happens in marketing, what happens in supply chains at this moment in time. And I just have a group of friends around me who are thinking about the same thing. And we, the three of us, may actually not know all that much, but we're trying to make sense of what happens to us, what happens to our lives, what happens to businesses. And that exploration in and of itself, even though we may not come up with the perfect solution or we may struggle to understand why companies have taken a particular decision, I think the sense-making process itself is something that is truly enjoyable. Well, Felix, thanks so much for joining me today. I hope to see you sometime around either in Cambridge or in Berkeley. Yes, once we're back to meeting in person, it will be really fun to catch up with you. And thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure to speak with you. And don't forget, better, simpler strategy. Thanks, Felix. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.